Welcome to the Goodness Podcast, the Middle East first platform dedicated to tackling women's health in a real and honest way. I'm your host, Noor Tahini. Welcome back to my conversation with Dr. Sheethal Kinney, a relationship therapist based in Dubai. If you missed part one, hit stop and head back to episode 34 of the Goodness Podcast. Otherwise, enjoy this episode. Is there such a thing as a right or wrong partner? When I said earlier that aligns on their values, I meant, you know, when when you said in the very beginning, what are the things you're looking for in a partner and what are the things that you will not, like the, what did you call them? The hard no's the non- or the... Yeah, the non-negotiables. Yeah, yeah. The non-negotiables. So let's say you are with someone who fits within that kind of framework for you. Mm-hmm. Is there then a right or wrong partner or is it just a matter of how much work you put into the relationship and what kind of guidance you have from a therapist or a counselor, etc., who helps you see each other's perspective? Mm. So that's actually, it is actually a good question because as I told you about the non-negotiables, right? And I said that technically speaking, in a, in a relationship, you are going to gridlock on 69% of your problems. So it's a little confusing because you're like, well, then is it just marriage in general, not just my marriage? And I'm, it's just not about being with the wrong partner, but just, you know, marriage is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, there are a lot of gridlocked issues that you can live with, like the example I gave you. But there's some gridlocks that you cannot live with because your non-negotiables are being, you know, Challenged or yeah, yeah, challenged. Exactly. So for example, you have a partner who had a terrible childhood and never wanted to have kids. Yeah. And that's that's their red line. That's their non-negotiable. Does not want children. You want children. There is never going to be a way to live with that. And that will be a deal breaker. Similarly, there could be certain values that have come up for you that, you know, there are many values that you can sort of try and um, reconcile and bring into your relationship, even if that was not something that you were, that was not your starting point necessarily. But sometimes people do actually come from extremely varied experiences in life that, that change their preferences in ways that you cannot, there is no living with that. So there is actually such a thing as probably a wrong partner. When you realize that no amount of dialoguing or no amount of therapy will really change your stance on certain things, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. So there is, there is such a thing, but I would say that a lot of times, you know, you would probably know in the back of your mind that you're heading into this relationship, expecting that person to change. Yeah, of course. Who hasn't gone into a relationship expecting that eventually the man will change? (laughs) Exactly. Or trust me, even the other way around that, you know, the woman will just end up, you know, conceding. But it goes two ways. There are certain things that you should not or will not be able to live with, like the the example with the baby, the the children example. But there are couples who then give up on their non-negotiable because they thought that they're going to change their partner and they couldn't eventually so that they suck it up, but then they're miserable. Or then there are people who get divorced eventually because they realize that they had gone into the relationship with the assumption that the partner would change. Mm -hmm. So is marriage, in your opinion, would you describe marriage as difficult? 
And has it always been difficult or is this something that is more true of the modern marriages we were describing before? Or have both had their own difficulties? I think marriages definitely work. However, I think our awareness about what we want and what matters to us can make it far less difficult. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we go into the idea of marriage based on what we think it should look like and the variables that should be important. So we're, we're also kind of prey to certain myths about marriage, like, you know, if your partner loves you, they should know what you want, and you shouldn't have mm. to tell them. Freeze them out when you're mad at them instead of telling them what you need. I think a lot of times we make things harder for ourselves, and if we have a lot of challenges personally, then our marriage is going to have challenges. I'm going to put it that way. Actually, that's, that's a simpler way to put it. Do your work. Yeah. Figure out what are my sensitivities? What are my vulnerabilities? Um, where do I struggle with trust? Um, can I actually communicate? Do I have my guard up? Do I have my insecurities? Get to know yourself better. And if you have actually worked through that stuff, um, or at least you have gained awareness on that, um, you will be in a better position to communicate your needs and wants in the marriage and make it as successful as possible. It's when people expect the marriage to fix their problems and the marriage to fix their insecurities and the marriage to fix their challenges. That's when we get into a tricky situation. Hmm. If that makes sense. That makes sense. That does make sense. You You have to heal yourself. You can't. It's it's the whole uh, analogy of two halves don't make a whole in a marriage, right? It's two whole. It's two holes, not whole as in like a hole in the ground, but whole as in complete. So two holes make a whole marriage. Yeah. Yes, yes. The way I would want you to picture it is almost, you know, I think we think about marriage as two concentric circles, not two concentric mm. circles, like two intersecting circles, like almost like a Venn diagram, and then in between is the relationship. Actually, mm. it should be two separate circles and then a mini circle between the two that is being fed by the two big circles and it's mm. two two holes that are feeding this relationship you know when it's when it's an intersecting when it's intersecting circles imagine that the relationship is being threatened you feel like part of you is going to be lost you don't know who you are outside mm. that relationship yeah so you put uh, too much pressure on that relationship. So you were saying that it's very normal that marriage feels so hard considering that 61% of the problems faced in relationships are gridlock problems. But is it possible for a couple to navigate these without the help of therapy? Is it, is it easy? Have you seen so, that successfully? So the, the cool part is that, you know, this research that came out that kind of showed what works and what doesn't work in marriage, this was done not based on what couples were told. This was actually done based on observing couples out there. Mm. So the couples who actually made marriage work, they were naturally doing that. And that's what was the cool part is to see that people are naturally, there are couples out there who are on their own doing things right. And there are couples who are doing things wrong. So that in itself should give us confidence that, yes, there are many, many couples who, you know, navigate these things without therapy, for sure. 
Does that have to do with how self-aware the two individuals are and how much they've done their own work? So I, I think it depends on the amount of trauma that they may have experienced themselves, um, their own resilience, you know, a lot of their own in individual variables, whether or not they have done their, their own therapy or they've read a lot or had insight or had good role models. I think all of these are factors that contribute to, you know, good relationships and, and, and sort of their patterns being different from people who maybe we see in couples counseling a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And we do have a skewed sample size. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that the soulmate narrative is detrimental to relationships? You mean to say there's only one person for everyone? That or narrative? to say like, yeah, or this idea that, you know, when the person you married is your soulmate and as a result needs to understand your soul and needs to get everything, like to know what you need when you need it, etc. Yeah, I think that I think the problem with the narrative is that a lot of times when we're saying soulmate, even though we're saying the word soul, S-O-U-L, we are implying S-O-L-E. Yes, so your only mate. Yes, and sort of, you know, you are the godsend, you are the one person supposed to, you know, take me to nirvana or, you know, like, you know, take away my pain and, and make everything all right. I think that it, it relieves responsibility of your own work for yourself and puts it all on the other person. Mm. And I think that's what we, if, if I had to really, you know, simplify this, apart from the examples we gave in the beginning where I want my partner to be, you know, my dance partner and my library partner and my this and my that and whatever. Really what we're looking for is we're looking for someone to fix us. We're looking for someone to make us feel good without the responsibility of us to make ourselves feel good. It actually puts undue burden on that one person. And we do actually fulfill ourselves a lot with the people around us. But it doesn't have to be one person. It doesn't have to be outside of us always. And it's always sort of a combination. If I had to give you an analogy that I give couples a lot of the time Mm. is, and we are all actually, none of us have really escaped childhood without some sort of a scarring, you know, yeah, some sort of difficulty scarring intentionally and intentionally with the best of parents. It happens. And so I say that imagine, you know, imagine one person is a burn victim and they have these, these, you know, wounds on them. And you're trying to come close to them and you're trying to hug them. Yeah. Now you're trying to come close, but a lot, a lot of times when you're touching them or holding them, you may hurt them without realizing it. So when the person is vulnerable enough to show you their scars, you're going to have to be careful with dealing with that. Right. Right. You're not going to forcefully go and press that area that hurts, which is what we do when we're in a fight. We take someone's baggage and throw it in their face. A lot of times couples tell me that's what they're scared of. It's like, I don't want to show my wounds to my partner because they're going to just use it against me. So in this analogy, it's like, yes, the person has to be careful with your wounds. However, you also have the responsibility as the person who suffered the, the, the burn, the wounds, that you have to take care of your own healing as well. 
it's not that the other person is responsible for making sure you never get any pain. You're going to have to do your own rehab. You're going to have to get better. But in the meanwhile, they're going to have to be dealing with you very in a, in a fragile way and in a careful way. So you both have to do sort of your work to be able to come close. Okay. How much compromise is too much compromise? I think this would go back to that, that same point of, you know, A, first of all, what is it that you're, comp like, how do you compromise? The idea of compromise is, is I think the most widely mistaken and widely like the misconception around compromises. I'll give up something this time around. You give up something next time around. Right. <laughs> like, or I'll give something up now and then I'll hold it over your head. Usually, ideally with compromise, there is an issue that is not black and white. And around any given issue that you're say, quote unquote, compromising around, there are certain aspects of that issue that you can have some flexibility around. And then there are certain aspects that is a complete no go. Do you understand what I mean? Like, think about any issue that you might compromise on. There's certain parts of that issue that might feel like it's a non-negotiable. And usually when I get a couple to discuss an issue where the compromise is needed, they both need to talk about where they're flexible and where they're hitting their non-negotiable. Mm. So a good compromise is where you are respecting each other's no-goes and non-negotiables, but you're still kind of working in the gray with whatever area of flexibility there is. So whenever you feel like you're giving up on something that is a non-negotiable for you, that is not really a good compromise. That's not really going to work. What if you're giving up on something that is not necessarily a non-negotiable for you, but when you look at it in the big picture, it's yeah. just a sign of your partner's inflexibility or it's a sign of the fact that you're always giving and they're always taking or, you know, what mm -hmm. if it's it's not a non-negotiable? It's not like um, the example you gave before was uh children and a family. What if it's not, mm -hmm. we're not talking about that, but we're talking about, for example, always doing what they want on the weekend or always watching the movie that they want or always, mm. you know, following their lead. Like at what point has your life become so shaped by who the other person is as opposed to who you are? Right. And that happens quite a bit. Sometimes it comes from, well, a lot of times actually, it comes from narratives in our own mind about, you know, what makes us a good enough partner. Because if in our mind, what makes us a good enough partner is to make the other person happy then, you know, you have guilt for saying no. You feel badly if you're not doing what the other person wants. Because as much as the other person can be held responsible for taking, you are also responsible for giving. Why are you yes. doing it yes. in that way? That is, so, that is so spot on. And, you know, at goodness, one of the, like, one of the, the, the values that we stand for is sharing, you know, mm -hmm. and we always encourage women to share their stories with other women and, So like in light of that, I'm always happy to share my story. But for example, in the beginning of my relationship with my husband, mm -hmm. I was, you know, so smitten that I was like, whatever you want. He's like, what do you want to do this weekend? I was like, whatever you want. And he would yeah. say, it's so great how flexible and easy you are. And I, and I like, I took that as a badge of honor and I was like, right. I'm so easy and flexible. And, and so I would just tell him whatever you want, whatever you want. And then it got to a point where I woke up and I was like, 
how did it get so far from what I want? Mm. And then you get upset with your partner, but you are the one who gave all that time. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of times we don't realize this, but we're kind of setting up a pattern in place. And then the other person also thinks that that's actually what's making you happy. Mm. You know, the other person is quite unaware And by the way, the giver personality often is secretly hoping, and I'm not like necessarily putting you in this box, but I'm saying what I've observed normally is people who are more comfortable with giving than taking are secretly hoping that the other person will just give without having to ask. Mm. So because I am more comfortable in the giving role and saying, we'll do whatever you want. And maybe I'm less comfortable saying, no, I want to do this or I want to do that. I would probably be thinking in my mind that, you know, you will realize how much I'm giving you and then you will give me. Yeah. I think it's also tied, and I don't know if you agree, but I feel like in in my case and in the case of a few friends I've spoken to, it's Mm -hmm. also tied to a lack of confidence in what you have to offer to the relationship, right? So you, Mm. it's like, uh, I'm going to be the flexible and easy one and, and, and that, you know, like, hopefully they're not going to realize that I'm lacking in X, Y, Z department. So it has right. a lot to do with how, how worthy you feel or how uh, adequate you feel or how much you feel you have to give. And then Absolutely. as you grow up, exactly. And then maybe as you grow up a little bit and you step more into yourself and you realize, no, like I want to have a say in this. I want to be able to like, I, I have, I do have a lot to give. Mm-hmm. then you kind of do a 180 and your partner is like, whoa, where's this coming from? You know, like, yeah, exactly. you were like, cool why with didn't this you all tell along. Me? Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and why didn't you tell me that this was negatively impacting you? Because yeah. we, if we're coming from that place that we don't have a lot to offer, we also feel like we're not entitled to be making a big fuss about things. So we might mm. also not be making a fuss for a long time and then pressure cooking up inside. Until you're like, you know what, enough is enough. Like I gave and I gave and I gave. And by the way, this may not uh, apply to you, but with a lot of cases, I've worked with relationships where there is a partner who is giving a lot or say, quote unquote, compromising a lot and, and thinking of it as almost, you know, this is me loving my partner. And, and saying, oh, I'm being the bigger person or I'm being a martyr or I'm being a loving wife or husband or whatever. And the sad part is that they get to a point where then they actually fall out of love because they did not get their needs met. And then they want to leave the relationship. And the other partner is completely blindsided. And I've had, oh my goodness, I can't tell you how many times I've had couples sit in the office. One person's completely blindsided by the other person's revelation that, you know, well, actually I can't do it anymore. And the other person's like, do what anymore? I had no idea you were doing something that you were so unhappy with. What do you do there? Like, what do you advise people to do? Well, I think the, this kind of relates to the question you had um, listed in one of the surveys. I think you were asking, it's like, you know, what do you do if one person's actually fallen out of love because of this? Like, yes, yes. this is a question we got a lot. Like, what if you love your partner but aren't in love anymore? Yeah, honestly, there's one thing I say to couples when they ask me, you know, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? I have seen couples who have been together for a long, long, long time who have a lot of, lot of baggage and really a lot of 
sadness and bitterness that has accrued over time. And then there are relationships that were just one year old, two year old. And you would think by logic that maybe where there's less damage, there's more hope for revival. And where there's more damage, you know, it's kind of a lost cause. But the the factor that has really shown where love can come back or where actually the marriage can work again is really if both partners are still innately interested in wanting it. If there is, and this is the part that's like so subjective, right? If someone has just really fallen out of love in the sense that they are not interested in even trying to get back into love. If there mm-hmm. is if there's interest, if there is actually a willingness, I do think that, you know, rekindling a spark is very much possible. But I think if you don't have the interest anymore because you've put your wall up, you have started to imagine your life outside of this relationship, you've taken steps to move on, you started talking to other people. I mean, there's so many things that people do to, to mentally prepare themselves. Like you've checked out. So if if the person has mentally checked out, and that can look like many different things, but they don't have the interest to try anymore, then that's kind of a done deal. Okay. But if they, there is an interest, then you're saying that there is hope. Yes. Okay. Exactly. You know, one thing that I've spoken to a lot of women about is the fact that it's hard to find a good role model or a good like example of a successful modern marriage around us. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really hard to, I mean, you will find friends who can relate, of course, but in terms of role models or advice seeking, I think the other issue is that, you know, if we're thinking about what we see out there, it's no longer a given what we are looking at is really reality. Because marriage is something so personal and marriage is something that people are so guarded about in terms of their private lives, um, no one wants to paint a picture to the outside world that their marriage is failing. Mm. You know, even when marriages are struggling, people see couples out there, like especially because I mean I've I've dealt with a lot of couples who whose life looks picture perfect on Instagram or Facebook or any social media website or their friends will say, oh, you know, they're lovebirds and and then they kind of come to session going, you know, it's, it's so ironic that this is what people think of us. So in terms of looking to role models, especially role models in terms of not people you would actually talk to, but even just for hope's sake, <laughs> I think it's hard just for that very reason, because it's hard for people to be really open. I mean, I know recently... Uh, Will Smith and his wife, Jada, Jada. Pinkett Smith, yeah. they did like a whole red table thing and they talked about their marriage, which was like, wow, um, you know, you will barely, you will rarely find couples who will actually talk about their relationship like that and the complexities that involve it. So I think for that reason, looking for role models is harder. However, if you were looking for a place, I think, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I always look to, you know, the research, I look to the science, I look to the information, the authors. One of my role models, actually, are John and Julie Gottman. They 
they are the founders of the Gottman Institute. And um, they're, it's funny, Dr. Gottman was married three times. He was married the first two times unsuccessful. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of fueled his passion to understand marriage because he was like, man, this is not working out for me. And then his third marriage lasted and for a long time, like they're still together. And his his third wife, Julie Gottman, convinced him to turn his body of research into a form of therapy because she was like, you found out like what works, like why not take this information and, you know, pass it around? Um, why not actually let others know? And I think relationships have become a science these days because there's been so much research around it that I would much rather rely on the information that comes from journals and publishings and and research, whether it is parenting relationships, whether it is romantic relationships, social relationships, because even though there's been a lot of wisdom in our parents and grandparents and all of these things, because these things are not typically things people would read books for, right? It was just, Mm. you just... You just learned um, how to parent intuitively. No one read books. You just learned how to be in a marriage intuitively. No one read books. No one like gathered research. Um, and that's why the assumption is that you still consult with family on these things. You still consult with people around you. But I, I would be biased and I think I would rely more on the science around it. So here's what I'm trying to get at. Yes, It seems that with an understanding of marriage and relationships, Mm. understanding of the science or guidance from a therapist or having done work on yourself, etc. It is possible to have a long and healthy marriage. And it's possible to also have a long and healthy marriage in cases where you have an easier marriage because, as you said, like you guys are just happen to be much more aligned on many things, so it's less work is required. In all of the other cases where either it's not that easy of a marriage because you maybe are not two easy people or you're a bit different on a few things or you don't have guidance from a therapist or you didn't do work on yourself or you don't have an understanding of the science, which honestly I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, would apply to most Mm -hmm. marriages. Do you agree with that? I think so, probably. I mean, if we had to look at the whole world yes. and like what most people do, yeah. Yes. So would that explain the high rates of divorce today? And also in cases where people don't get divorced, what happens in a marriage like that? Is there just like, do, do the two people grow apart, except that they're going to stay married, but then sort of like live these separate lives within the marriage quote unquote, staying together for the kids and that kind of stuff? Yeah. If you had to think about the numbers, and I don't know exactly what the divorce rates are around the world, but I would say in communities where divorce is not acceptable, I think around the world, there's probably more of a population that considers divorce unacceptable still than, than the population that considers it acceptable. And I'm also thinking about just, you know, India and China being like the most populous countries. So yeah. the culture there being more collectivistic, you, you marry for family, you don't marry for 
love necessarily like you know the principles are different i think a majority thinks it's part of life there are disagreements you i think you put up with things you focus on the kids you focus on your duties the duty mindset you know life is moving smoothly conflicts may come about i think the expectations drop So a lot of times what I hear at least again I could be wrong is that you know why would you expect so much from marriage I mean eventually it becomes like this it's okay you know this is what this is what my mother went through this is what my father went through um this is what we go through it's kind of a a given that this is what you sign up for and now this is the the population that does not get divorced Yeah. Either because they've resigned to the idea that it's okay mm. that, you know, we live a little bit of a parallel life or it's okay that my husband really doesn't know me like now how I am at at the age of 45 or 50. Like I don't really know what he's, you know, interested in these days and what excites him and what worries him and what's going on in his life maybe he doesn't share as much with me. Bleh. but you know we focused on our kids or we focused on our life and things just kind of move on um that's a narrative that i've heard a lot yeah it sounds it sounds like something i've heard a lot too yeah however i think that you know especially our generation now so this is like all the generations before us i guess but sort of our generation i think is has more access to you know i guess the science of relationships and marriage and 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 the expectations have changed and now it's like no if i'm not happy in my marriage i'm not staying whatever modernization has come and wherever choice has come i think the idea that you just put up with it and focus on the kids and focus on your duties i think that that phenomenon that that concept is fading away a little bit instead it's being replaced with it's too much work to really fight this so i've already invested 10 years into this relationship i've already invested 6 years into this relationship i don't want to look for someone else again so maybe it's not coming from a this is what marriage should be like but it's more from a i'm afraid of being alone or i should stay together for the kids or there are other reasons why people will not get divorced even even in modern marriages mm-hmm. um but then what ha- ends up happening is you're living such parallel lives and you still want all of those things that you know you once wanted they haven't faded away you haven't convinced yourself that they're not important so then you start looking elsewhere for it mm. and so a lot of times one of the partners cheats or you start finding yourself interested in other people not each other and one of the other ways the the, the relationship eventually deteriorates So if your expectations are higher of your relationship in a sort of not till death do us part but till unhappiness do us part mm-hmm. then we are going to see a lot more people th- like throwing in the proverbial towel. Either that or more people going to counseling. So that's that's actually a possibility. You know, people might start looking for more information like those people who didn't have the information might now start looking for information start to fix it and then there are people who will throw the towel, yeah. That was part two of our conversation. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part three, which will be released tomorrow. 
Dr. Sheetal will dive deeper into attachment styles and explain exactly what makes for the ideal secure relationship.